Hello everyone, it's July 31st, 2018. This week, Starliner has an anomaly, nothing serious. Virgin Galactic reaches new heights, which is awesome, and the Opportunity rover is still on Mars and not saying much. But you know what I say, liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 169 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. Nice. I'm Connor. I don't think anyone got that. <laughs> Sorry. No one got that. All right. Yeah, that was your reference to the fact that we were at episode 169, but maybe back <laughs> during episode 69, we had to refrain from making any jokes. Thanks. Yeah, so we're starting off on a good foot here. I'm s- Oh, sorry. So you're back, and uh, Ben is out for this week. He had to go see a man about a horse in the middle of the desert. We're kind of theorizing what this is all about. Um, I made that up, uh, but yes, he did have to go see a friend in the middle of nowhere. Those were those are his words. So you're filling in once again. Let's talk about this week in spaceflight history. And our winners this week, we have uh, Anderson DeNova, Ben Howard, Valentin Frank, Fell Knight, and Chubby Turcozzi. Yeah, I'll just get it right out of the way. The clue was no Buckeye, no Buck Rogers. And this was obviously a reference to Neil Armstrong. A lot of people got this one right. It was pretty easy. If you're not from the States, you might not know what a Buckeye is. Actually, it's a kind of uh, nut, and it looks like a Buck's eye, a deer's eye. I just know it's a garbage football team. Direct all mail. Send your hate mail to at Connor J underscore W. Always send it to Connor. Yeah, so the birth of Neil Armstrong, which was on the 5th of August, 1930. And he was born in Wapakoneta, Ohio. And uh, I looked up the pronunciation. It is Wapakoneta. So you're welcome, Ohio. I'm going to go briefly through the spaceflight parts of his career because we've covered them so much. And I kind of wanted to get to know pre-spaceflight Neil and post-spaceflight. So he was born in Wapakoneta, Ohio, and he moved around a lot because of his father's job. So as a kid, he kind of moved from, you know, town to town. I think he lived in 14 different towns. I think that was a total within the space of four years. So a lot of moving around. Uh, But he fell in love with aviation and became a pilot and studied aeronautical engineering at Purdue University. Like another garbage football school, I mean. Okay. <laughs> and interestingly, he was accepted at MIT, but he was uh, dissuaded by his uncle who said that you don't need to go that far to find a quality education. So he just stayed in Ohio. I think his uncle was probably right on that account. He could have gone to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, but hey, why not go to Purdue, you know, despite their football team, which I don't think MIT has a particularly good football team, right? Or any at all? I think MIT he has a Quidditch team. And that's not a joke. I believe you. All right. <laughs> Moving on from there, uh, let's move on to his naval career. Uh, he was, or he started as a pilot in 1949, and he flew 78 missions over Korea during the Korean conflict or war. I don't know what to call it. I think it's officially called the Korean conflict. He had one interesting run where I guess he was just doing a low bombing run, like a very low pass type of a bombing run. And uh, he was hit by anti-aircraft artillery, and he collided with a 20-foot pole, and it sliced off three feet of his wing and he was flying a panther f9-2 i don't know exactly what kind of a plane that is i imagine you know connor but um yeah he was flying without three feet of the right wing of that the the f9f was the first successful uh carrier-based fighter so it was a straight wing uh single turbojet engine sort of fighter uh it does like ground attack rolls stuff also the blue angels uh it was the first jet aircraft used by the blue angels oh interesting okay cool Yeah, so he had to get that back. He didn't quite make it, but uh, he was able to eject, and he actually ejected over the sea, but was luckily blown back over land, and he was rescued from there. So uh, kind of a close call. He also served as a test pilot, so a lot of interesting stuff there. But anyway, let's move on to spaceflight. So in 1958, he was uh, selected for the Man in Space Soonest program. And you know what? I had forgotten that that even existed because it didn't exist for very long. Um, And what a strange name for a 
program, Man in Space Soonest, which incidentally is an acronym. It spells MISS, so that's, yeah. pro- that's probably not good. No, it's not. <laughs> they sort of missed their target on being the Man in Space Soonest, too. Yeah. Thanks, Soviets. Uh, so that program was quickly replaced with Project Mercury, and from there we had the Mercury program all the way through Apollo. So he flew on Gemini 8, and he served as Capcom for Gemini 11. Uh, and then Gemini 8, he had... Um, well, we've again, we've talked about this probably like, I feel like 10 times before, but uh, there was that problem during docking on orbit with the Agena target vehicle. That was the one where they were rotating at about one, was it one RPM a minute? Or was it like once every second? One revolution per second about. One revolution per second because they had a stuck RCS thruster valve. But, you know, I guess being the hero that he is, he managed to save the day. So yeah, that was Apollo 8. Then, of course, came Apollo 11. Yeah, and I kind of just really don't want to talk about it because what is it that we don't already know? Nothing important happened there. We can skip that. Let's not skip it, but uh, let's just say obviously landed on the moon July 16th, 1969. Uh, The lander touched down on... July July 20th. I'm sorry, you're right. They launched from Earth on July 16th and they touched down on the lunar surface on July 20th, 1969 at 2018.04 UTC if you want to know the exact time. You know, it's funny, like when something is so well known, you kind of don't want to reference it, but do you want to say it or you want me to say it? Because I kind of don't want to say it, but you can go for it if you want. Do we have to? Like, I think I think you know it by now. Exactly. So it's like, it, it seems weird to say something that everyone already knows. But yeah, so he set foot on the moon, said that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And as I'm sure we all know, uh, that was actually a bit of a flub because he was supposed to say one small step for a man. I believe what did happen was he actually did say it, but because of the transmission, like the Tidris data rates or whatever... It wasn't fully captured in the broadcast, but okay. like I believe they did like some analysis of the audio, and it came out that he did say it, but it was just like very small, which is understandable because he was about to step foot on the moon. Okay, yeah, I've heard that too, but I thought it wasn't quite settled as to which it was. Um, maybe he didn't even remember what he said. You know, like he might have messed it up, or he might not have, but he didn't even know. Because I imagine a lot of things are going through your mind at that point, so he's probably yeah. It's it's like you're about to walk on the moon. You know, yeah, small it's stuff. as though you're setting foot on another world. So yeah, that happened, and that was his last time in space. He resigned from NASA in 1971, taught aerospace engineering at the University of Cincinnati. In 1985, uh, he was part of an expedition to the North Pole, and this was assembled by someone else who wanted to bring people who are most well-known uh, for going to new places, in a, and obviously Neil Armstrong would be among them. So he was uh, selected for this, and he did it. I don't know how. I don't know if they walked the whole way or if they just took a little whatever up to the North Pole and you know got out and put a flag somewhere and said, hey, this is cool, and came back. But uh, he did go to the North Pole. And throughout his life, he was a spokesman for various companies, uh, most notably Chrysler. So he did some advertising. And again, he just kind of lived out a quiet life and then uh, unfortunately died in 2012 due to complications shortly after bypass surgery. So the surgery went well, but then he developed further complications. um, And then that's when he passed away. And uh, that was on August 25th of 2012. And he will forever be remembered. So we're at episode 169, and this is, I guess, the first time we've done any kind of an autobiography of Neil Armstrong, I think. Uh, I searched our past notes pretty thoroughly. I don't think we've gone into this kind of depth about him previously. If not, then, you know, we're just repeating ourselves. So, yeah, that's Neil Armstrong. All right, so let's move on to next week's clue. So next week in 2007, very recently, I think I cut my thumb. That's it. That's your clue. And if you think you know what that's in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck.
First up in the news, Starliner had a pad abort anomaly. This happened, I guess, last month, but we're only hearing about it now. Somewhere in that time frame, there was supposed to be a pad abort test of the Starliner capsule with the service module. But in preparation for that, there was an anomaly while, while doing a hot fire test, and there was a hydrazine leak during shutdown. I thought that uh, this was an interesting bit of news because obviously... Uh, there's been so many setbacks, and the first thing that occurs to me is, is this going to set them back even further because both SpaceX and Boeing are quite a bit behind their targeted dates for putting people into space, and this might just be another couple months or so. Uh, there was a statement released by Boeing saying that, quote, we are confident we found the cause and are moving forward with corrective action. So that sounds good. And they say that the problem is something that can actually be fixed operationally. So whatever caused the hydrazine leak, it's not a hardware issue. I guess it was just a sequencing issue with the startup and shutdown. I don't know any details beyond that. I have not thought about this. I genuinely forgot the Starline existed. Wow. Uh, Aren't they slated last in the whole COTS system, isn't it? Both SpaceX and Boeing are about at the same time frame. And actually, I think that Starliner is a little bit in the lead. I don't know how, because SpaceX seems to have made more progress. Um, but NASA has more confidence in the Starliner, even though they have not actually done a successful pad abort test. And they, you know, they've, they've had this leak, but still, I mean, there must be something else. I'm going to say, I'm going to say money had something to do with that. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think the reason I keep forgetting about Starliner is because unlike SpaceX, they're not very upfront with their whole yeah. system. Uh, you know, whereas with, you know, SpaceX's pad abort for Dragon 2, uh, and their eventual might never actually happen in flight abort test. Uh, they, they are very upfront with how that works and like broadcasting it live. Whereas with Starliner, they had an anomaly uh, and then they released it a month and a half later. Yeah, they're, they're just a little bit more secretive, I suppose. As far as NASA is concerned, you know, they seem to be pretty confident in Starliner, but your guess is as good as mine as to why that is. I mean, I think that it is making good progress, but it might be money. Um, yeah, cynical Connor is told it's, it's totally money. I and mean, it could also be that Boeing has been around for like the better part of 80 years where, uh, in various forms, whereas SpaceX has been around for like 11, yeah. uh, or you know, like 18, I think. So yeah, so I guess they have you know a better track record historically. Uh, I mean, if not with spaceflight, which is general aeronautical experience. Uh, an arcade engineer in the chat points out, uh, it's worth noting that the Boeing statement went out immediately after the initial Ars Technica story went up. They were waiting for it to finally end up in the press before they said anything. So I guess they were, whatever leaked, they were waiting to get caught on it before they actually said, oh, hey, we messed up. So Yeah, I believe the story was broke uh, by Eric Berger of Ars Technica. I think he was the one who first put it out there, and then they came out with a statement saying, you know, what had happened. So I don't know how he came across the information, although he's a pretty good journalist. I mean, he's one of the best when it comes to spaceflight. All right, um, I guess that's everything for Starliner. Let's move on to our next story. Spaceship Two goes even higher. So back to Spaceship Two, Virgin Galactic making very incremental progress once again. Just a quick update. We had mentioned it a couple weeks ago when VSS Unity had done a, I, th I think it was a captive carry and then a release. I guess not a captive carry test. It, it was a glide test, I think. 
Um, I get these all confused. But um, this was a new actual powered flight. It reached a maximum or a peak altitude of 52 kilometers. And its speed during reentry, apparently, was Mach 1.7. So that's, I'm guessing that was probably their fastest one yet. But they had no anomalies. Um, and there were two test pilots on board. Um, one who had previously flown, I believe it was the SR-71 or it was like a U-2 spy plane. I don't... It was a... a... A U-2 pilot. Yeah. Okay, yeah, a U-2 pilot. And uh, and he had said that he thought he had gone high before, but, you know, obviously this is a little bit higher still. So uh, he very much enjoyed that ride. And, yeah, just to loop back around to the uh, the re-entry speed being Mach 1.7, it was the first re-entry to take place with the, the VSS Unity at uh, supersonic speeds. Uh, they said there was no real, like, goal, like, specific test milestone for this flight. It was mostly just, like, go higher and faster than before and get close to the 60-second full burn, full duration burn. But, as always, when you go higher and faster, you deal with higher stresses and uh, and higher, you know, loads on reentry. So the thermal data was very important for the engineers. It was interesting that there was no real... I mean, I, I can't say that there was no reason for the test, but they didn't have any one specific goal in mind. It, it was just, you know, to sort of go a little bit higher, a little bit faster. Kind of strange that, really, because you'd think that they would be testing something very specific. But they did learn some interesting things. One thing was that they, they seemed to be finding that the engines burned for a little bit longer than they had expected, or maybe provide a little bit more thrust. Yeah, it was yeah, it was extra uh, extra thrust, is what they said, which that seems... I wouldn't say it seems disconcerting, but, like, if you expect a certain amount of thrust from a very specific engine and it produces more, you might want to look into that a little bit. It seemed to me like they were sort of touting that like as a feature and not a bug. But extra thrust is not necessarily a good thing when you should know what your thrust levels are. But yeah, they definitely need to get a handle on exactly, you know, what the thrust profile is for this thing because that that was kind of strange to me. I thought that they had tested the engine previously. Like maybe if you just do ground testing, then obviously you're just getting thrust at sea level, which isn't the same thing as going up through the atmosphere. You know what I mean? So Yeah. I mean, they did do an 11-second burn in May, plus all of the tests with the original Virgin Galactic shuttle. So they, they should know, they should have a, a good series of data points. But I imagine that if you if you get extra thrust from something, you're probably sacrificing something somewhere else, either like materially and it getting burned or something. So that is probably something they're looking at. Or this, we'll get an email explaining that we're all wrong. But I don't know. Pilots didn't have lunch. That's probably what it was. Yeah, that might be. Yeah, there you go. We've got it solved. Cool. So quickly moving on then to uh, our third story. We have three of them this week. So a little update on opportunity. And I wanted to do this because last time that you were on the show, we had talked about it. So I figured why not when you come back on, let's talk about it again. So it's been several months and there is still a huge dust storm on Mars and opportunity is still, well, we think at this point it's just shut down and it's sort of hunkered down and waiting this out. If anyone has forgotten, there is still this massive dust storm, which I think scientists believe it it has peaked. So um, that's good news. uh, the gist of it is, it turns out since opportunity requires the sun to be alive, and uh, the dust storm is uh, is very contradictory towards the sun reaching the Martian surface, uh, the two are sort of at odds with each other. Uh, it's been about seven weeks since opportunity last uh, radioed back to Earth. The dust storm began two mu- uh, like you know, uh, eight weeks ago, uh, back in May. So. Uh, what we currently believe, and we covered this a bit uh, last time I was on the show, I don't have the specific episode number, but it was uh, about that time ago. Opportunity uh, is currently in a low power fault state, which means that 
she isn't getting enough power to either run her mission clock or just run anything. So she put herself to sleep to just wait out the storm uh, and will turn on once the, the, pow the power level reaches a sufficient enough voltage or kilowatt hour or whatever specific unit to... Uh, turn back on again. Uh, and I, I think I mentioned this before, but the uh, electrical fault systems on the uh, Mars Exploration Rovers is very interesting. Uh, I don't have the, the name of the, the woman who wrote the, the, the code and the, the, the documentation for it off the top of my head, but it's very interesting, uh, all this stuff. Basically, what happens is once the rover turns back on, if they lost the mission clock, it has to teach itself when day is using voltage from the solar panels at specific intervals, and then use that time to approximate when it should phone home and where it is, uh, which is really interesting. Uh, and I believe they already have procedures in place for when that inevitably happens. But it seems that the storm's peaked, but it won't be over uh, enough to hear back from the rover for a few months. They're starting to think about early to mid-September, which is really not great because that coincides with the start of the Martian summer, which is, I believe, October 16th, where Opportunity is, uh, which means that more dust storms can start then. So uh, hopefully there's a a small window where they can make sure the river's doing okay. And if there's another storm, it could potentially do what it did a couple years back and blow some of the dust off the solar panels and get the voltages back up. It just has to sit in the breeze, right? Yeah, uh, there's been cases of like little dust devils or whatever going by and just picking the dust off of the rover. I believe that's actually saved the rover a couple times because it's gotten very close in the winter to not being okay. In your estimation, how much longer do you think it can be in this you know, low-power fault state before it doesn't wake up? Or is that even uh, possible? In my estimation, I don't know. But I've read and, and talked to a couple people who know more than me. And I believe we talked about it last time I was on here too. They have, uh, using like, you know, all the, the data they get from the Martian climatology and stuff, they know that where opportunity is right now, because it's, you know, going into the summer, it's very relatively warm there. So opportunity can survive very cold temperatures. But with that being said, it does need power, you know, uh, heat sources. Uh, thankfully, it does have two uh, plutonium heat sources on the rover itself to provide warmth. Uh, and also, it's late spring there, so even if everything shut off, Opportunity can survive uh, at a steady state temperature above its minimum for uh, almost an indefinite time, and it'll probably even uh, get better in the future because it's only getting warmer there. It might not have power, but at least it's getting warmer, so it won't freeze to death. It, yeah, they don't have to worry about that. If you do, if you want like the human side of the story, there are a lot of a lot of the uh, the people on the MER team are very active on Twitter. I know Planetary Carry, Carry Bean, uh, Mike Siebert, uh, well, I don't know if still is with the team or not, but they are all very active on Twitter with their, their thoughts on, on opportunity and how they're dealing with the stir craziness of not having a rover to talk to. And it's very entertaining, but also a little bit sad. So obviously check Twitter to see how they're doing. Yeah, they must be bored, huh? Well, bored and worried. Uh, I've heard that they, they've done Mars karaoke a lot. Uh, at one point, Carrie went to Space Mountain and wrote it for every time someone liked a tweet. It ended up being like 160 times, and she only got to like, I think like 15 or 20. That is the weirdest thing ever to do. Why would you yeah. do that? Carrie, Carrie's very a very good person. <laughs> She's very interesting. I, I went on Space Mountain once as a kid, and that was enough. I'm good. But yeah, that's uh, it's always interesting to see you know the human side of these ropes, because we do talk about them, and they do... You know, I you probably heard me like gender the rover and all that stuff, but that that is what they do. They personify the heck out of these rovers because they love them, uh, and it's it's almost infectious. 
let's do some short and sweet. We got two, and these are more space science than space flight engineering, but they're good ones. So first up, uh, Mars Express finds evidence for liquid water on Mars. Yeah, this is what everyone's talking about, so I figured we should talk about it too. Mars Express has found what looks to be liquid water about 1.5 kilometers beneath the surface of Mars using an instrument called MARSIS, which is uh, the Mars Advanced Radar for Subsurface and Ionosphere Sounding good acronym. It has found strong, if not conclusive evidence that liquid water is present in a lake about 12 kilometers across in the northern hemisphere of Mars. For this water to be in a liquid state, it must contain high amounts of salts as the subsurface temperature is around negative 68 Celsius or negative, I don't know, 90 something Fahrenheit. I don't remember, but very, very cold. Test is now operational. The transiting exoplanet survey satellite began its missions Wednesday after a three-month trip to its science orbit. The satellite will provide targets for James Webb and other exoplanet observation telescopes, both in space and on the ground. The test will sit in the eccentric orbit of 108,000 by 375,000 kilometers in a two-to-one resonance with the moon while conducting observations and will remain in a stable orbit there for 10 years. Ben and I discussed this maybe on a past uh, short and sweet. The big difference here is it is now in its operational orbit. It's doing science, and hopefully it will find some cool plans for James Webb to look at so we can, you know... Yeah, like, <laughs> James will do a lot of looking at planets. From the ground, as you like to say, but I think... Yeah, yeah. I want, I, they'll just open up the clean room. Does the clean room have a sunroof? Does it make it very clean? So, no questions, comments, or corrections this week, so we're just going to move on to upcoming spaceflight events. Just one launch, and that is all. So, Connor, what is our one launch we have? Our next launch is uh, on August 4th, 2018. That's going to be at 519 UTC, and it's a Falcon 9 Block 5 with Mariputi, which is a Telcom 4 Indonesian geostationary communication satellite, and it'll replace the aging Telcom 1 satellite. And that's going to be on Space Launch Complex 40 in Cape Canaveral. And the window is from August 4th from 519 UTC to August 4th at 719 UTC, so it's a two-hour window. Two-hour window, early in the morning UTC, so like about midnight here, yeah. or like midnight if you're on the East Coast, which actually isn't bad, so that's totally a watchable launch. And I believe since it's a Falcon 9 Block 5, they're probably going to toss that onto a barge. I don't know the details of what they're doing with that stage, but if it's a Block 5, they're not going to, I don't think they're going to be ditching it. It's geostationary, you know, shiny new Block 5, so they could probably toss that onto, of course, I still love you, and then everyone cheers a little bit. That's a good point. It is geostationary, so yeah, most likely a barge, and obviously that's easily watchable, SpaceX.com or anywhere else, and uh, uh, yeah, and that's your only upcoming spaceflight event, yep. so that's it. Also, at some point, a Soyuz might launch. Yep. You'll figure it out. Yeah, so according to Launch Library, it has a July TBD, so maybe in the next couple of days, but highly doubtful. So, so. so by the time you're hearing this, a Soyuz may or may not have launched. It may or may not contain a Barzem, which is a high-resolution topographical imagery satellite. At some point, also, a Long March might launch. Oh, and a good point brought up by Arcade Engineer in the Discord since uh, Soyuz 2.1a carrying Barzem is a is through Pletsk, that is not going to be streamed, so you will probably hear about it on Twitter. Those are upcoming spaceflight events, so we will deorbit. And uh, thanks for stopping by once again, Connor. Hopefully, Ben will will be back next week. Yeah, yeah. After he's done doing whatever he's doing, I'm out glad in the you just nowhere. bring me in on on the very fun numbered shows. Yeah, so let's cue the music then on that note, uh, most of which is brought to you by Ronald Jenkins. Check him out at ronaldjenkins.com and some of which is brought to you by Tim Dodd, the Everyday Astronaut. And if you like this episode, please review us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you enjoyed our show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. Thanks to our $5 and up Patreon supporters in the Ground Control chat room listening to the show live. You can connect with us on Twitter and Reddit at Orbital Podcast. You can send questions and comments to info at theorbitalmechanics.com. For more information 
mentioned on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theordalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. And that is all, so we will see you in one week on Orbit. Until then, later. Peace. Peace.